You know what the most powerful force in the universe is, don't you? Stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Christine. And I'm Gracie. We both have a brain condition called synesthesia, and we love it. It blends different senses together and makes our lives richer and more colorful. But my brother Ian, he's a skeptic. No, it is totally real. (laughs) So on this show, we meet incredible people and explore their amazing stories about how synesthesia is changing the world. From artists to musicians to thought leaders and scientists, people with synesthesia are everywhere, and they make our lives more colorful. Colorful. More colorful. Welcome to SinPod. It worked. <laughs> Jesse, your laughing makes it harder. <laughs> Welcome back to SinPod. I am Gracie Olmsted, and I am delighted to be here today with my co-hosts, Christine Olmsted. Hey. And Ian Reed. Hey, how's it going, guys? Today, we are talking with Dr. Richard Saitoic, an American neurologist and author who has studied synesthesia for decades and written several books on the subject, including Wednesday is Indigo Blue and The Man Who Tasted Shapes. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Saitoic. Thank you. Nice to be here. So first, I think it would perhaps be beneficial for audience members, especially those who don't have synesthesia, to hear a definition of it. What is synesthesia, scientifically speaking? Well, by definition, everybody knows the word anesthesia, which means no sensation. So synesthesia means joined or coupled sensation. So children are born with two, three, or all five other senses hooked together so that my voice, for example, is not only something that they hear, but they might also see it, feel it, or taste it. Synesthesia appears at a very early age. Um, the synesthete remembers always having it. And it stays with them the same throughout their entire life to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So once you have it, you've got it. And it appears very, very early without any need to develop or practice it. This is something that happens to you. You don't make it happen. Just like seeing happens to us. Um, They're usually quite surprised to discover that their playmates aren't like them. They make some innocuous comment like, oh, A is the most beautiful pink I've ever seen. What does yours look like? And they get a withering look like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in the middle of Wednesday's Indigo Blue right now. Gracie and I have both read your book, Synesthesia, as well. You mentioned that it's possible that all people are born synesthetic. There's some research to suggest that, but some of us keep it and some of us don't. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? This is the neonatal hypothesis, and it's the result of work by Daphne Maher at McMaster University in Canada. And she suggests that all infants are synesthetic, only to lose this starting around three months of age. And this makes sense because the human neonate is making two million synapses per second. I mean, that's mind boggling. And what happens during the first year and then continuing until the teenagers is that these are pruned away. The synapses that you don't use, that use it or lose it, they fall away. And so the child goes from having many, many more synaptic connections than an adult does to eventually having the adult number. So it's thought that perhaps this is why so many young people are synesthetic. And then as this natural process takes place, they lose the trait. 
That said, there's another interesting fluke. Um, because you know, science is full of exceptions. The more questions we answer, the more questions we have. And so there are a few who either develop synesthesia or lose it around puberty. Now, puberty is, of course, a time not only your body is undergoing tremendous changes externally, but your brain is undergoing its second most vivid reorganization since the time that you were in utero. So that's the hormonal influence and the rearrangement of your pathways. Uh, it's also a reason that some people may lose it or gain it at that time. And I've had twin brothers, for example, one said, oh, you know, I had this uh, like my twin brother, but then he lost it at his bar mitzvah. There's always an interplay between nature and nurture. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah what percentage of synesthesia would you say is a result of nature? Well, to be synesthetic, you need two things. You have to inherit the genetic propensity to make additional connections among neurons. And secondly, you've got to be exposed to cultural artifacts like letters, numerals, the names of the foods that you eat, knowing how to tell time, etc. Four percent of the population have these genes but they're not expressed with 100% accuracy. And that leaves a smaller number of 1 in 96 people who have an overt kind of synesthesia, seeing the days of the week as colored, seeing letters and numerals as colored, even though they're printed in black ink. Those are among the most common types of synesthesia. Mm -hmm. So how did you first become interested in synesthesia? What led you to this as a specific area of study? I love words, not surprising for a writer. During my medical residency, I would escape the page operator in the hospital by going to the sub-basement of the library where the signal didn't penetrate. And I would have five, 10 minutes of just peace and quiet. And I would look at all these old dusty books that nobody checked out in a long time. And one of them was uh, by a Soviet psychologist called A.R. Luria, called The Mind of a Mnemonist. And he described this memory expert who had a five-fold synesthesia. And this is why he was able to remember everything limitlessly and for many, many years. And I thought, oh, what a cool word, anesthesia, synesthesia. And I filed it in the back of my head. Fast forward, I had a new neighbor who taught lighting design at the School of the Arts, and he invited me to dinner to meet some of his friends. And he said, oh, we'll be a few more minutes. There aren't enough points on the chicken. Now, his friends laughed and said, oh, my God, what are you smoking now? And he turned beet red. He was so embarrassed. And he said, oh, you're a neurologist. Maybe you understand. When I taste things, I also feel it on my face and in my hands. With an intense flavor, a feeling sweeps down my arm, and I feel weight, shape, texture, and temperature as if I'm actually grasping something. And I was just trying to be polite. So I said, oh, you have synesthesia. And he said, you mean there's a name for what I do? And that's when the light bulb went off. I thought, how could he not know? I mean, that's astonishing. And I thought, this is maybe something that's worthwhile looking into. And what really cinched that was the reaction of my colleagues when I told them about Michael Watson, who was the man who tasted shapes. Immediately, they said, well, what does this CAT scan show? And I said, no, no, you don't understand. He doesn't have a hole in his head, a lesion. He's got something extra. And they looked at me like I was crazy and said, man, this is too weird, too new age. You stay away from this because it'll ruin your career. And I got to thought, why are they so hostile to this? What's wrong with looking? 
For the first 15 years, of course, artists and journalists and the lay public wanted to know everything they could hear about this, whereas the neurologists and medical community were very, very dismissive. They're just making it up. They just want attention. They're simply remembering refrigerator magnets from childhood or coloring books, and that's why A is red and B and G is green, or they're old potheads, and so they're just having residual hallucinations from their drug use. And when all that failed, they said, well, they're just artists, and everybody knows that artists are crazy. But it took 15 years. Because you see, when people like that, when skeptics asked, is it real? I would say, well, real to who? To you or to the people who have it? Because those skeptics who said, is it real? What they really wanted was a third person verification of a first person experience. And that meant some technological kind of thing namely a picture of the brain. And in fact, I did a lot of stuff with Michael Watson, angiograms and radioactive xenon gas and the very first MRIs. And he became quite apprehensive because he said, and he didn't even want to tell me this, but he said, I was afraid that you were going to prove that I was making this up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how sad is that? Yeah. Our culture has just sort of squeezed that out of you that you can't believe your own experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fortunately, now that the decades have gone by, it's synesthesia is a very popular topic. Um, people are doing PhD theses and writing books. There's conferences all over the world. There are international associations in various countries. Yeah. We held our first meeting in Moscow last October. That was fun. From my understanding, you've devoted a lot of your career now to studying synesthesia and how you know that aspect of the mind works. And yet, unless I'm mistaken, you yourself are not synesthetic, correct? Right. I am not. No. Everybody always asks, why? Why me? And it didn't really occur to me, why me, initially. And initially, I said, well, it's because my father, who was also a physician, he was also a magician, a sharpshooter, a champion swimmer, a photographer, a raconteur. He was larger than life. And he instilled in me a taste for the offbeat and the unusual. And so, boy, that's synesthesia, right? It was decades later that the insight came to me that, well, probably the real reason is that I'm gay. And so that as a 10-year-old in New Jersey, my father's medical profession was saying that I was sick. The church said I was doomed. And the state said that I was a criminal. And I hadn't done anything. You know, these people don't know what they're talking about. They don't know me. So when my colleagues and peers began to say, oh, synesthesia cannot possibly be real, This is not a brain thing. I thought, boy, this sounds familiar, you know? And so I think it was just that that my natural curiosity to pursue this, plus the fact that it felt so familiar, the vehemence with which people tried to deny it. Yeah. Yeah, despise the other. And of course, how could you not be fascinated by these individuals, the stories they tell, the experiences that they share you know, I've had grown men in tears you know, saying, oh, nobody ever believed me. You're the first person ever. And you know, you saved my life. You opened up my life. I mean, for a writer and a physician, it doesn't get any better than that. I'm, I'm curious, what would it be a piece of advice that you would give a non-synesthete who is skeptical of someone's kind of subjective experiences? You know, I we have a lot of information to share and a lot of things to explain. You know, you can live in your own little bubble and not understand that other people have different points of view. Yeah, you don't you don't have to believe it. <laughs> I like that response. I think that's a good one. 
And it's not just you and the synesthete, it's you and the rest of the world. And, you know, we see this in politics, really. People are looking at the same thing and they have completely different perspectives on this. Or let's take Western versus Chinese medicine. Same thing. It's the human body, but the whole concepts are different. And one of the very heartening things about this, of course, is people in grade school do book reports and projects on synesthesia. And I always love it when you have a young person have the light bulb go off and say, oh, my friend sees things differently than the way that I do. And so all of a sudden, they've opened up to being willing to see another perspective yeah. and not to be so rigid and defiant. I'm right and you're wrong. And of course, that's what we have in politics today. You're evil and you're stupid and you're wrong. Mm. Right. One thing that you mention in The Man Who Tasted Shapes is that there's this very common conception of the human brain as a machine. And that as you went about studying synesthesia, you began to see all these layers to the human brain that were perhaps not commonly understood or that were misunderstood even in the realm of science. So I wondered if you could talk about that. Well, of course, The Man Who Tasted Shapes is now considered a classic. That said, our thinking has changed a great deal from even when I wrote that. Mm. But we've always had machine analogies of the brain. In the Carts era, it was the hydraulic gardens of Versailles. Then we had telephones and telegraph switchboards and then electronics and then, of course, computers. But, of course, the brain as a computer is a terrible analogy because it's nothing like a computer. Synapses don't have either an on or an off state. They have actually many states, and some synapses secrete more than one neurotransmitter. And then, of course, there's not just the hardwiring of axons and synapses that we can think of as being a train going down a track. There's also another kind of transmission that's not widely known at all called volume transmission. And that's the train leaving the track. Mm. And that's very, very hard to account for because there's just so many variables involved in trying to get a handle on that. The other thing was, of course, that when I started in, uh, when it was in 1979, the reigning paradigm was modularity. So we had a vision module, we had a hearing module, we had a language module, and by definition, these could not communicate with one another, okay? So synesthesia was obviously taboo under this. And so it took a while to sweep away modularity and come up with a different idea of how the brain is organized. And of course, now we know, everybody agrees, that the brain is massively interconnected. So it's not a question of do synesthetes have cross-connections among different brain areas. It's that everybody has them. Synesthetes just have more of them, and they're consciously aware that they have them. Mm. We're all synesthetes. For example, everybody lip reads, even though they never think that they do. And the louder and noisier it gets, the more I have to look at your mouth to see what you're saying. Mm. And cinema persuades us that the dialogue is coming from the mouths on the screen rather than the surrounding speakers. That's why even bad ventriloquists convince us that the dummy's talking. 
So sight and sound are so tightly bound already, as is movement. So dance is a wonderful example of synesthesia. We move our bodies kinetically in parallel to the beat of the music, okay, and the dynamics of the music. And we don't think anything strange about that. We hear a good music, we start tapping our toes. We don't say, I think I'll tap my toes now. (laughs) We just do it, you know, and it's like when we use scissors, you know, our jaw opens and closes as we do this. That's a synkinesis. Watch somebody when they do it. You'll see their jaw go as they they cut with scissors. So would you say that in some sense, synesthesia is no different than the experience that 100% of people have in some form or another? It's just a specific type of blending of the senses that maybe is a little less common? Or would you say that it's categorically a different thing? Well, in terms of the experience, the phenomenal experience or what philosophers called the qualia, qual being a sensory attribute. The smell of a rose, that smell is the qual of a rose, as is the color of a rose. So a color qualia, for example. So it is different for synesthetes because to them, it's as if you're pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz and seeing the machinery in operation. So for a synesthete, they're quite aware that there are these connections gone. It's very vivid. There's an emotional wow factor to it often. Of course, this dissipates over years because it, you know, it's like once you see the light going in the refrigerator, that's cool. But the thousandth time, you don't even notice it, right? So they are different in the terms of the, the felt experience. Mm-hmm. And of course, they have extraordinary memories. And this is just one reason for that. When you test them with standardized tests, you see that they're very, very high. Some of them are so profound that they're what we call eidetic or photographic memories. Mm -hmm. I had a question for you. We interviewed multiple people now who have uh, been diagnosed with learning disabilities. Is that very common? Are some people perhaps holding on to these synesthetic connections from childhood more so because they have these challenges? Or or do you have any research on that? I'm I'm just curious because we're encountering that a lot. You remind me of an anecdote of a woman who was in a math college math class. And she complained to her professor that it was confusing because the numbers kept jumping up into their places. She had a number form. Yeah. She couldn't do the equations because the numbers were moving around on her. The bottom line is that we need to study that systematically. I found that learning disabilities such as dyslexia um, and autism and ADD were more common among first-degree relatives of synesthetes. So that first-degree means the immediate family, brothers, sisters, parents, children. And Nina Rich in uh, Australia followed up with a large group and found sort of the same thing. Somebody needs to do it with a broad representative sample. There's no reason to think that that's that's not true because while the brain isn't necessarily a zero-sum game, when you have a gain someplace, you usually have something taken away elsewhere. You've got synesthesia, you've got great memories, but a lot of people get lost in cities that are set up on a grid. They get their right and their left confused. They don't know whether they're going uptown or downtown. They need a sort of a network map to, to find themselves around. They also have difficulty with arithmetic. And that's not because they dislike it, but they just have difficulty with it. So there are some soft signs that there are there are some difficulties with synesthesia. Mm-hmm. That said, nobody would want to give it up. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's absolutely true. 
So Christine is an artist. Grace is a writer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in various conversations that I've had with them over the last year or so, um, both of them have uh, said that synesthesia is almost akin to like a superpower uh, in helping them hone their crafts. Christine with her painting uh, and how music impacts her painting. Uh, Grace with her writing and how uh, the letters and the words that she's writing almost have characters and lives of their own, and that helps her connect with her writing. Um, and, you know, I guess the question is, you know, is that typical? And do synesthetes tend toward the arts? Synesthesia may just be a shortcut to getting the rational, reasoning, talkative mind out of the way so that you can be artistic and create something. Because to create something, you have to think beyond your own boundaries. And that said, you know, we have some famous artists who are synesthetes like the composer Livio Messiaen, Lady Gaga, Billy Joel, the painter Vasily Kandinsky and David Hockney, novelist Vladimir Nabokov, jazz musician Michael Torkey. But we have many, many, many times more of synesthetes who are artistic without being famous artists. And so you'll find that compared to an age match sample of individuals, that synesthetes are more likely to speak a foreign language, play a musical instrument, be engaged in some sort of creative activity, such as sculpture or drawing or something like that. These genes, and I'll use the singular gene, but it's more than one gene, allows you to hyper-connect different brain areas in order to see the similar in the dissimilar. So if you say, I know it's two because it's white, well, there's something about two and white that's the same. That's a definition of metaphor, seeing the similar in the dissimilar. And what synesthetes and particularly famous artists like Nabokov and Hockney and all that, they have a great capacity for metaphor, for seeing the similar in the dissimilar. Mm -hmm. So when this gene expresses itself in a sensory area of the brain, then you have some kind of overt synesthesia. But what if it's expressed in the front areas, the executive areas, areas for memory, the hippocampus, etc. What kind of person do you get then? And so there are five groups around the world who are tracing down the, the gene for synesthesia. We've got a number of markers so far. And so once we have some sort of blood test or a saliva test for this, we can then take a really big sample of people at random and say, who's got the synesthesia markers? And what are they like? Are they also sort of creative? Are they unimaginative dolts? We don't know. Are they all lawyers? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. clearly, they're all unimaginative lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you want something predictive. So, then, so the only thing would be to see who's got the markers in a random sample, and then see what kind of personality and what kind of cognitive profile you have. Wow, that's fascinating. How close is this research to having some sort of test? Oh, it's been going on a while now. My colleague, David Eagleman, who co-wrote Wednesday's Indigo Blue with me, when I first met him at a meeting in Berkeley, he was talking about the number forms and he figured, oh, a year and we'll have it all nailed down and he'll go on to something else. Well, that was back in, I don't know, 2000 and he's still at it. So it'll be a while, but um, what's the rush? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I've been at it since 1979. I don't feel that I'm in a rush. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Distant Moon. Distant Moon is a new media company that specializes in crafting cutting-edge content and storytelling for a world that's tired of all the noise. We like to say that video views are fine, 
but emotional connection is way better. That's why companies like Google, Chobani, Booking.com, Stellar Artois, Manchester City Football Club, and the FBI, yeah, that FBI, have all entrusted us with telling their stories on film and video. At the end of the day, our driving mission is to create clutch content that makes the world a better place with cutting edge brands and movements who are improving the world. That's what we call media production for a new era. Visit us and get in touch at distantmoonmedia.com. In one of your books, you talk about how oftentimes the colors that might be associated with a letter will correspond to magnets a child might have had on their fridge growing up or perhaps to the color of a fruit associated with that letter. So like A being red like an apple. I, you have to be careful with the refrigerator magnets. For most people, non-synesthetes, A is also red. What that tells you is that some people can imprint on magnets a very, very few. We have less than a handful of cases of that. So just because some people can doesn't mean that that's the explanation of synesthesia. There are 99% of synesthetes who do not imprint on anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I was curious about, because I know when and where that happens, it seems like there can then be a tendency in the synesthete or the people who know them to kind of sweep away the assumption that they have synesthesia and say, oh, that's something you just picked up as a child. But it sounds like from your work, it is very rare for that to actually happen and that it does not negate the experience of synesthesia whatsoever. For all the talk of these beautiful, gorgeous colors, a lot of synesthetes take me aside and say, you know, these colors are really sort of weird or ugly, not ones that I would really pick myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, why is that? And some of them are like washed out and dirty, you know? Yeah. And that's because V4 in your brain on each side is the unique human color area. Mm. So most of us, it's activated as we're looking at things and surfaces and objects. But for synesthetes, that's being activated by sounds, words, letters, taste, etc. And so because of its non-standard activation, they're having strange colors. One guy has an S-cone deficiency in his retina. So that renders him unable to distinguish blues and purples. And he talks about seeing his Martian colors. So that is, he's seeing colors that he's incapable of seeing in the real world. Hmm. So you can tell your people, like skeptics say they're making this up. He said, well, how can you see things that you can't see in the real world then? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Because I have a couple different types of synesthesia, the strongest being when I hear music, I see the, the quote unquote fireworks as the term you used in your book. Hmm. And that one's completely involuntary and a part of my daily experience. But I also have very strong color associations for people. And I don't like to mm -hmm. call that synesthesia because it feels like it's an association rather than synesthesia. It sounds like a cliche, doesn't it? Yeah. Like you're reading auras and things. Is that me being overly creative? Should I categorize it as that? Well, um, it is synesthesia. And the name for it, it's a little clunky name. It's called emotionally mediated synesthesia. Hmm. And that is that the synesthete will see color auras around people, objects, even statues, etc. Uh, one guy sees the Golden Gate Bridge as green, has a green aura around it, even though the bridge is painted orange. Jamie Ward in London did the study on this. 
And he found out it's the emotional valence within the perceiver that determines the color. It's got nothing to do with what you're looking at. It's how you feel about it on an implicit sort of basis. He showed somebody a set of plaster busts, nothing, and then photographs of people, some of which the kid knew and others he didn't. The strangers, nothing. People he knew, yeah. And the better he knew them, then the more color there was. Or using even just Christian names, that the more familiar the person was with a name, then the, the more intense the color was. So it could be people who were considered once witches or soothsayers who could read your aura actually had this kind of synesthesia. Of course, there's no way of knowing what happened centuries ago, but it's the emotional valence in you that's determining the color. I think what you just hit on is the point that has caused such trepidation in me is that point of if I don't know someone, I don't have a color for them. And so that makes me feel like a false synesthet because uh. it's like, I don't know you, I don't have a color for you, but the people that I'm close to have very, I have very strong colors for. And so it's embarrassing to say that that's a form of synesthesia because if some random stranger were to come up to me and say, what's my color? I couldn't tell you because I don't know exactly. you. Exactly. Because you don't know them. Um, let me ask you a question though. You know, we've all had this experience when we, we meet somebody sense of the and we instinctively think stay away from this person they're creepy there's something weird about them you know so if that ever happens you might sort of notice whether you have a synesthetic aura with yeah. that because that is an emotional reaction you know we read each other all the time babies learn to read people almost two years before they learn how to speak. So reading people emotionally is the fundamental human skill. We're social animals. We have 45 muscles in our face so that we can express these emotions and we can read them in other people as they're making facial expressions that they're not even aware of making, you know? Yeah, synesthesia would come in very, very handy in that case. Hmm. I'm curious though. So like when you say that a person has a color, yeah. Are you saying you actually like see an aura of that color around them or you just are like, oh, that person kind of feels like this color to me? It's stronger than this person feels like it. I, Gracie, she's to me like a raspberry color, but I don't see that color around her in the same way that I see colors quite literally when I hear music. It is different, but... I, yeah, I'm not seeing it in the same way my other kind of synesthesia occurs. Yeah, and uh, it's a very difficult question of where do you see these colors? And that's led to the, the distinction between projector and associator synesthetes. So the projector, they said, where do you see it? I see it on the page in these these letters. You know, it, it's a kaleidoscopic experience on the page. Whereas other people said, well, I just feel the color. I know that they're green. Mm-hmm. So. But it is a different experience. I see them, the colors, when I'm hearing music. I can actually see them like a cloud yeah. in the space. But it's not like that when I think of a person. Don't you, in one of your books, talk about how some synesthetes project on their brain? Like they have a space internally where they see and experience their synesthesia, whereas others experience it more out in the real world. Right. Those who experience it, it's usually within the space of the arm's reach, mm. what's called peripersonal space. It's not far, far away. It's within arm's reach. And some people speak of seeing like a little TV screen in front of them on which these things play out. 
Um, others have what's called the ticker tape phenomenon. I say to this woman, I says, in a V is How's your dog? And she says, I see the colors flash through me. And then I think of my dog. She says, now I can stop it and look at a given letter, but in the ordinary course of having a conversation, I don't have time. It just flows through me. And then there's others who have the internal, they're in the mind's eye. There are some people who can't visualize anything. I mean, non-synesthetic individuals, um, yeah, these people have poor memories and they're really baffled when you ask them, what did your childhood room look like? Can't, well, uh, it was small. <laughs> it was, well, you know, what were the walls like? The, you know, the bed, the rug. You know, no, no, they can't. They can't picture that anymore. Hmm. Is there a most common uh, form of synesthesia in terms of those categories of projected? And I, I forget what the other. Well, it usually has to do with the graphemes. Where do you see it? You know, is it on the page or is it in your head someplace? Mm-hmm. Um, also, colored music. Colored music usually tends to be an overall sense. Or it's out there definitely. Some people are very precise. Sean Day, head of the International Synesthesia Association, he's a jazz musician and he's made drawings. He says, you know, it's a distance, it's 20 degrees down, it's 40 degrees to the left. And if I move my head, it follows with me, kind of thing. Hmm. You get some people who can be very, very um, specific uh, in describing what they see. And sometimes that just depends on the people being able to describe things. And like, you know, uh, Gracie, you're a writer, so you probably describe things very, very well because you observe things very, very well. Whereas most people, you know, if you ask them what the name for things are, they, they really can't tell you, you know. What's the hole that you put your shoelace in? Everybody says, okay, that's the eyelet. Well, what do you call the thing that you put through the hole, through the eyelet? And... Well, one thing I think is fascinating about your job and that I've appreciated in reading your books and talking to you is that you connect so deeply with people's stories and remember so many details of their personal lives. Yeah. That's why this isn't a job. This yeah. is fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is life. Endless opportunity to really consider the unique individuality of the human person and the mystery of who they are in studying this. What can I say? Yes, it's true. (laughs) But you know what we teach uh, medical students at GW is we teach them how to take a history. It's not passive listening. It's extracting useful information. But I said the most important thing for the patient is to feel heard and understood. Hmm. Yeah. You got that, and you got a home run. Hmm. What are some of the most interesting stories you've come across or uh, gathered as the result of your studying of synesthesia? And if I'm not mistaken, uh, was there also a story involving a babysitter? Oh, the babysitter was a doctoral candidate, and the parents were both academics at Vanderbilt. And she said, oh, my God, Skylar. He was like three and a half, four years old. Skylar's psychotic. We have to take him to a child psychiatrist because he's seeing these things. He's seeing these these colored straws floating in his apple juice. He's drawing sounds. This is a helicopter sound. This is a clock sound. And it's like, uh, and the parents thought, hmm, I don't know. I don't think the kid seems okay to me. And they found my book in the library and, you know, 
wrote to me and all that. And I directed them to somebody else at Vanderbilt, actually a professor of neuropathology who uh, I learned about through his mother, who was a newspaper uh, columnist. And uh, mm-hmm. she had uh, four generations that she described. Then to have another neuropathologist have it, he said, well, as you've said, it's useful to remember telephone numbers around the university and uh, classifications of like tumors and whatnot. And he says, you should see the beautiful anatomical colors in the brain. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's when I wish I was synesthetic. It would have made learning neuroanatomy a lot easier, I think. Hmm. As more people are coming to understand and respect the study of synesthesia, because for a long time it was not a respected study, what is one thing that you wish more people understood about it? Or if you could say one thing to the whole world about it, what do you wish people would understand? That it's a normal variation of human experience. Synesthesia is a trait, like having perfect pitch. Not many people have perfect pitch, just about the same percentages have synesthesia. It appears at an early age without any need to practice or develop it. Uh, You either have it or you don't. And once you have it, you have it for your whole life. And people who have it are shocked that everybody just can't name that note. (laughs) I still wish uh, physicians would be more open-minded. You still encounter um, mothers who take their kid to the pediatrician and they get the, you know, he's just, this is a weird kid or something's wrong with them kind of thing. They won't believe, they'll show him my book and said, oh, they still won't have an open mind. So you know what the most powerful force in the universe is, don't you? Most people say dripping water because, you know, it'll wear down stone and create these beautiful monuments and all that. No, the most powerful force in the universe is stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) It's caused all sorts of suffering. Hey, so at this point, you probably already know that Distant Moon makes this show. I mean, we kind of talk about it every episode, but what you might not know is that we're hiring. That's right, we're looking for talented artists and technicians to join our team and help us create cutting edge content that makes the world a better place. So if you have experience in video editing, cinematography, writing, producing, sound recording, coffee brewing, or (laughs) heck, anything related to film, hit us up and we'd love to chat. We're one of the fastest growing media production companies on the East Coast, and we're always on the lookout for the next great team member who will help us change the world. If that's you, give us a shout at contact at distantmoonmedia.com. That's contact at distantmoonmedia.com. I think, you know, to a lot of listeners who have listened to this episode and maybe don't have synesthesia, I think there could be a sense of feeling like, oh man, am I missing out on something? And and uh, a feeling of, oh, you know, maybe if I'm an artist or a painter and I don't have synesthesia, am I being handicapped from, you know, having as successful a career as if I had synesthesia? What would you say to someone like that? 
you're just different, like everybody else is different. And you're thinking about yourself just like everybody else is thinking about themselves. How can you miss something that you never had? So you're not missing anything. If you're a non-synesthetic artist, you see the world much differently than everybody else does. Uh, I write things that Gracie would never think about writing. And, and she writes things that I couldn't hope to write about. Uh, it's just that we have different perspectives, different points of view. Yeah. And I think it's what's really nice is if we can appreciate that, particularly, you know, teaching young people that everybody isn't like you. Everybody has a different take on the world. Mm -hmm. We don't have to agree with it, but we should try to understand what it's like, maybe yeah. trying to put ourselves in their shoes. You might even say that not having synesthesia and having synesthesia could both be considered superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say that. <laughs> <laughs> so one question I had is I have a four and a half year old daughter. Mm -hmm. And from some interactions and conversations we've had, I'm pretty sure she might also have synesthesia. You know, she'll tell me Saturday is pink. Uh. If I push back really gently, I don't know. I think it's gray. She'll just know it is. And she'll tell me her whole week and all the colors. And so anyways, are there any words of wisdom or ideas that you have for parents raising kids with synesthesia, both to help them appreciate their gift or to, to help them understand Don't it? Don't try to teach it out of them, mm. you know, and listen to what they say and encourage them to be themselves. Yeah. Just don't teach it out of them, but just ha have an open mind uh, and listen to what they're telling you without trying to contradict them. People often ask, you know, what's the next kind of research? I think one of the really interesting areas of research is going to be finding children of synesthetic parents and being able to follow them over a long period of time. That's very difficult research to do, very expensive <laughs> to do. Um, that's sort of a dream thing that would come up. Because, for example, we have a timeline of when kids learn certain things. We know when they say their first words, when they're able to name the foods that they eat, when they'd be able to tell time, when they can count from one to 10, when they're able to say the alphabet uh, in order, when they're able to tell time, the names of the foods that they eat and all that. So again, the question is, do different kinds of synesthesia map up? at certain times hmm. with these developmental milestones. I don't know. I have a chart in Wednesdays that to go blue that shows that. And also I think a diagram showing that these types cluster into five areas. So if you have color hearing, you're likely to have other kinds of color things, but not of these other clusters. Right. Um, and that book is the little pocket compendium called Synesthesia which is part of uh, MIT Press's Essential Knowledge series. Uh, I'm very curious. So I've always thought that part of my sound synesthesia is color-related, but it's also the sound-related stuff. And I've always attributed my synesthesia to the fact that I'm an auditory learner and I had a lot of ear infections as a child. And so what I was hearing, I was really paying attention to because it was hard for me to hear for infancy to about three years old. And so I always have kind of assumed that because I had so many ear infections as a child, maybe I was overcompensating and trying to focus on what I was hearing. Do you know if there's any research surrounding childhood illnesses or things like that to perhaps keep synesthesia part of someone's life? 
There is no research. And secondly, I would say that there's no reason to think that you can hold on to anything. This is, again, synesthesia is not something that you can control or marshal here and there. It is what it is, and it has a life of its own. Sure. So you can't make it happen. You can't not make it happen. It did look like there's some research you had done or read about in reference that said that Buddhist monks who meditate have been able to have synesthetic experiences, as well as, of course, the people who do certain types of drugs have had <laughs> had these as well. So are, are there some people who have them in specific circumstances? Well, there there's a whole section on what I call the acquired synesthesia. So I would refer you to the books about that. But one place where you can have synesthesia is during deep states of absorption or meditation. Roger Walsh at University of California, Irvine, did a study to use three groups of meditators, novices, intermediates, and then, of course, the adept teachers. And what he found is that the more experience you had with meditating, the more likely you were to have synesthetic experiences during your period of meditation. Again, another really, really hard study to carry out and one that was uh, questioned mercilessly by the people who peer-reviewed that manuscript. Hmm. Have there been any studies that you've done or that the field has done that have called into a question any kind of previously held understandings about synesthesia? Well, one of the funniest is um, for a long time in the beginning, we saw that there were many more women than male synesthetes. And initially, I found three to one, which is easy. You can have that ratio with just plain old autosomal dominant inheritance. And then it crept up to like six to one, and the explanations had to become more and more convoluted. And I thought, maybe it's just that women are more willing to talk about it, you know? And again, Jamie Ward and Julia Simner at the University College London, they went to the South Kensington Science Museum, got a random population and said, are your letters and numbers colored? And it turned out that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between men and women, and that men didn't want to talk about it hmm. because they don't want to talk about having odd experiences. They don't like to talk about their feelings as a general rule, but um, so that, yes, we do have a one-to-one -one ratio. That's interesting. It has been interesting for us to talk to some people who share widely with others about their experiences of synesthesia and love to talk about it. And then a few for whom it is an extremely private experience and it's difficult mm. for them to talk about. Do you find that that perhaps correlates with the complexity of what they're experiencing or perhaps fears of what others think about it or, or both? I think it just relates to their temperament. Some people are just naturally open and warm and others are not very disclosing about themselves. For men of a certain age, of course, the, the social expectation to conform fed into that as well, so that you don't talk about how you feel about anything, let alone what your perceptions are. Hmm. In terms of gathering the data on synesthesia, compiling as much kind of scientific consensus as possible from the various studies and, uh, and data points that have been looked at, is there anything data-based or science-based or study-based that could call into question or cast any sort of like scientific doubt on synesthesia, or is it basically kind of as agreed upon now as, you know, the idea of gravity? Again, science isn't about agreement or consensus, it's about evidence. 
So yeah, the evidence is pretty firm that uh, synesthesia is is a real thing. And the question isn't to challenge it, but then to understand it. And then for the individual, perhaps it's important to understand what it means to them to be this way and to have these kinds of experiences. But again, even, I don't know, about five or some years ago, I was at a conference in Germany and a neurosurgeon was presenting this thing and he was showing an MRI scan. And at the end, he said, this proves synesthesia is real. And I just rolled my eyes and I thought, good God, we can show it's real with the, with paper and pencil. You don't need million dollar machines, you know? So yeah. there's all kind of people out there who are going to be uh, uh, with it or not with it. So uh, a follow-up question. You mentioned like if a mother took her child to a pediatrician and the mother showed them a book on synesthesia and the doctor kind of dismisses it, is it uh, widely accepted in the neuroscience community and maybe not as much in pediatrics, in pediatrics or, or other fields? Yeah, I think it, yes, I think in general, in primary care medicine is probably not, in pediatrics is not as well considered. Okay. I mean, if you can find another pediatrician who's more open, I would switch doctors. <laughs> um, that may not be possible, if depending on where you live. It's considered firm science and neuroscience, but in other fields of medicine, some doctors might still be skeptical, is what you're saying. Yeah, and even and in psychology, too, there's, there are a lot of psychologists who do studies on synesthesia and, and write about it in the psychological journals. Why there are these holdouts, um, you know, clinical physicians are not necessarily scientists. They should be, right. but that isn't always the case. It also is a factor of age, sure. you know, and again, temperament there, whether you have blinders and whether you have a rigid idea of how things are supposed to be. Um, that's usually a generally bad frame of mind to, to have because things turn out not to be the way we think they're supposed to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's a lot of difficulty around the fact that most science, we seek objectivity and consistency. But with synesthesia, the experience is subjective and diverse and complex from person to person, which I would imagine is both one of its most beautiful aspects and one of its most challenging. Well, there are as objective aspects to it. Mm -hmm. And of course, all science is also subjective. I mean, there are fads in science just like there are anything else. Um, certain topics are not viewed as being worthwhile of study. I mean, that's a subjective opinion, you know, uh, where others are. And of course, then we get rigid categories where the establishment says, this is how things are. And so the establishment controls the journals, the grants, the graduate students. I mean, early on, I had graduate students call me up and write to me and saying, God, I would love to do my PhD thesis on this, but my chairman would throw me out. I can't. You know, this is in the early to mid 80s. And now, of course, all that's changed, but a lot of it has to do with uh, the status quo, you know. And then it's the nature of orthodoxy in any field to dismiss or sweep away what it doesn't understand, what it can't understand or doesn't wish to understand. Sure. To what extent is the study of the brain similar to the category of synesthesia insofar as it's difficult to? prove with numbers and scans and data what is really kind of a very subjective thing from person to person? Again, it depends on the question that you're trying to answer. So what makes the research difficult is that with any given individual, you have to invent an experiment just for them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you're just using, you know, and then of one person, or you might get a small group of like six or eight or 10. But let's say you had 10 people who saw colors in response to spoken words. Well, how homogenous is that as a group? I mean, is that really a bona fide category or not? 
So you're running up against those kinds of difficulties. And that's the only reason I say that it's sometimes very difficult and very expensive because it's time consuming as well. But you can use um, tried and true methods for studying optical illusions, which cost nothing, a couple of dollars to buy the equipment and stuff. And you can prove all sorts of stuff. You just have to have imagination and a willingness to do the work. And this is perhaps a good time to ask, can you share any projects maybe that you're studying currently or are there Me, secrets? I, no, I'm not doing anything active at the moment. I, my time is taken up with students who I like to help and mentor and offer whatever little guidance I can. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. I've been at this long enough that I, I like to step back and encourage the younger people to come in. Uh, they have great ideas, things that I never would have thought of. And of course, science keeps changing. And so there's new ways of looking at things that is going to trigger an aha moment in their brain. And they're going to say, oh, I bet we could do an experiment. I bet we could do a study. Yeah. Hey, let's try this. You know. And they have a faculty advisor that says, oh, what a good idea. Yes. As I had a faculty advisor who actually knew Luria's book, The Mind of Anamanis. And he said, oh, synesthesia, you have you found a synesthete? So I was at a place and a time where I could actually do this kind of work. Yeah. It was very tedious. Michael Watson had a college degree in botany, so he understood the scientific method because basically I was squirting 144 syringes worth of stuff in his mouth and he would be marking the shapes that he saw. Science in Nova shows, you know, the glamorous science, but most of it is really, really very tedious. (laughs) Graduate students late at night in their lab with pipettes, you know, doing all the grunt work. So... What are the most exciting paths of research and study that you see coming down the pipeline in regards to synesthesia or studies of the brain in general? Uh, seeing how it develops in children. Once you've got the genetic preponderance and the cultural exposure locked in, you know, how does that get locked in? That to me is one of the most fascinating questions. How does that lock in happen? What's the mechanism of that? And it's going to be really interesting. But as I intimated with that illustration of the five circles, I think synesthesia is going to turn out to be an umbrella term for a lot of objective experience that can be arrived at by different routes. Yeah. So we'll see. Hmm. As I said, the more we learn, we answer one question, 10 new questions pop up. And it's like, it's never going to end. But that's what makes it such fun. Yes. Yeah. So one thing we've asked some of our guests on the show who have synesthesia is if there's a type of synesthesia that they don't have that they wish they had. And I can't think of someone who would know of more types of synesthesia than you. (laughs) So I'm curious, is there a type that you've always wished or an experience someone else had that you've always wished you knew what it would be like to experience that? Well, I haven't wished it because there's no point in wishing what can't be true. But I would really enjoy because I love music. You know, I, I play piano, I play jazz piano, I studied organ at Duke. And I love classical music. I think it would be really nice to have the light show that went with the music because I have very strong affective response to music. Mm -hmm. So even music, which sounds cacophonous to some people, you know, I can hum it. I get goosebumps and it's like, "Mm." so it'd be nice if I had a little color and shape to go around with that. Christine talked about fireworks. Uh, It's not the stereotypical, oh, I see fireworks, but like fireworks, a shape and a color arise 
it scintillates, it moves around a little bit, and then it fades away unless the stimulus keeps going. And then something, it'll keep replenishing itself like a fountain does. So in that sense, it's like fireworks. Mm -hmm. In reading your book, you mentioned uh, Franz Liszt. And you mentioned this line about how he was directing someone playing his music saying, you need to play it more blue and more lavender, less rose. And in general, when I think of romantic music, it is always pastel and it has always been blue. The Kapellmeister had no idea what he was talking about, but he figured that Liszt was being very passionate about this. And so he says, yes, not so Rose's passage, gentlemen, this passage requires it. And then you have people like Olivier Messiaen, the French composer, who sees colors with natural sounds, birds, especially waterfalls, storms, and of course, music. And he wanted to convey the color of this music. And so he had to invent a completely new method of composition, which is based on these chord structures to convey the color of the music that he saw. And so his music is so stylistically unique that you know who it is within the first measure. Right. You, oh, Messian, I know that piece, yeah. Hmm, that is interesting. And then you get people like Billy Joel and Itzhak Perlman who are very reticent. They do not want to talk about it. <laughs> there are other people at Juilliard too who is like pulling teeth to even get them to acknowledge this and that's only in private. Huh, hmm. that's so interesting. Well, as we draw to a close in this conversation, I guess the last question or two that I would have is whether there's something you would want to leave listeners with. Just any sort of closing thoughts on on synesthesia, what it has to offer the world, what it has brought the world, or what you've enjoyed about your career of studying? Well, it's brought the world a paradigm shift in two senses for science. It's swept away the status quo of modularity and showed that the brain is far more interconnected than we ever imagined and that dogma said that it was. And then for just humanism in general, it's shown us that people have different points of view. And if there was any message I would like to give listeners, it's keep an open mind. Mm -hmm. You'll always be surprised yeah. and you'll never be disappointed. Yeah. How about that? That's what we could monogram that on a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that Grace and I have mentioned before is that I feel like the more people I talk to with synesthesia, the more grace I feel like it gives me for interacting with anyone in the world because you never know the experience that they're having. And it just makes us all better people, I think, to understand a little bit more. Yeah. So instead of talking, listen, and one of the best questions to ask is, why? Hmm. Words on being a good conversationalist from a neurologist. <laughs> That's a good place to end. <laughs> and there we leave it. Thanks so much for listening to our show. We're having a blast making it, but we're just getting started and we need your help. If you want more episodes and to hear from some of the leading artists, thought leaders, and scientists discussing how synesthesia is shaping our world, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can get each awesome new episode automatically delivered to you. And please leave a review. That's one of the best ways for people to find our show. This show features Christine Olmsted, Grace Olmsted, and me, Ian Reed. Our producer is Alana Varley, and the show is mixed by the newest member of the Dad Club, Jesse Eastman. 
Our title music is by Virgil Arles, with additional music by Captan and Thad Kopek. SinPod is recorded and produced by Distant Moon Media. Catch you all next week. Thank you.